0: Welcome to episode 18 of Murder, We Write. I'm your host, Carol Goodman Kaufman. On this podcast, I get to talk with crime writers whose short stories and novels run the gamut from cozies to domestic thrillers. We'll learn from them about their craft, their process, and the business of writing. My guest today is GM Malliot. In college, GM studied journalism, followed by work in advertising and marketing. But she always dreamt of writing books, Then, living in England for graduate study, she read all of Robert Barnard's books, which greatly influenced her writing. Her first published mystery was called Death of a Cozy Writer, which won the Agatha Award for Best First Novel. She has since published another 16 books, including her most recent one, The Washing Away of Wrongs. That one is a continuation of her Max Tudor series. But she also writes the St. Just series, whose latest title is Death in Print. Jin, welcome to Murder, We Write. My first question for you is, you worked in advertising and marketing as a day job. Did any of that experience find its way into your mysteries? Hi,
1: Carol, and thank you for having me. It really did not. In fact, I found I was using all my energy, my writing energy, at work, when what I really wanted to be doing was writing my novel or short story at home. And none of it, like you're thinking maybe of Dorothy L. Sayers and her her experience that she did translate into a book. I never could do that. I was more interested in imagining perfectly evil characters rather than uh, just putting them on the page.
0: So when you were thinking about your characters and your stories while you were doing advertising... Did you have imaginary conversations
1: with them? Did you have imaginary friends as a child? Do you still have them? I was an only child, essentially. I had a much older brother and sister who did not live with us. So I was thrown on my own devices quite a bit and would invent uh, scenarios for my dolls and teddy bears and all that the usual stuff I think kids do. I was raised in a military family, moved all the time, and I think that's another element of, uh, you know, you, you create your own world and I guess take it with you uh, and arrive in a strange land with brand new friends to make, and you become very cautious in a way. You're observing people more than being an active kind of person. That's in, Anyway, that's the result with me. I became an observer and a note taker, seeing what you know what these people were about in this new place.
0: Then we have something in common because I too had a brother who was 12 years older than I and I was left to my own devices quite a bit. But I want to ask you about why you chose the mystery
1: as a genre in which to write. Speaking of brothers and sisters, My sister inspired my interest in Agatha Christie. She was a nurse who worked the night shift frequently. And of course, you can't fall asleep on the night shift if you're a nurse. So she read constantly and she read mysteries and she adored Agatha Christie. And one time my mother and I were visiting her and that I was introduced, I don't know what age I was, maybe eight or 10. And that became my, the love of my life in a way. I love the the puzzle, the structure. Um, I don't have a lot of patience for novels that are deep in, and meaningful and look into the human experience in some meandering way. I just I don't have the patience for it. But a mystery that I can take apart and try to analyze and project who the killer might be, that's my idea of a good read.
0: Jen, how did you come up with the two main characters in your series, Detective Chief Inspector Arthur St. Just and Reverend Max Tudor?
1: St. Just came from reading an awful lot of Colin Dexter, the Morse series, and a lot of British detective fiction in general, starring usually a DCI. I read, of course, uh, P.D. James. Her famous uh, dog leash character. I just, you know, just years of reading this kind of thing made me want to write a character similar to those characters. Um, I didn't want my Saint Just to be a troubled person. He's a pretty straightforward, honest, hardworking policeman, and uh, he happens in the second book to meet up with Portia, who is a criminologist. And they establish a relationship very quickly, and she's appeared in all the books since then. Now, Max Tudor was a slightly different story. I was at a conference in England, the St. Hilda's Conference. This was many years ago. Of course, P.D. James is not here. And she was talking about a friend of hers who was a coroner and an Anglican priest, an Anglican priest, which I didn't know was... A possibility. I thought you had to be one or the other. You'd have to quit one job or the other. You couldn't do both. But this was the first I realized that wasn't true. And a few years later, actually, I met uh, an Episcopalian priest who was also working for the CIA. He had left the CIA after uh, the hostage crisis in Iran, and it seems like nothing ever changes in this world somehow. But that was his the catapult that got him away from the CIA for a while. He entered the church. They brought him back because of his language skills. This was the basis, the genesis for my Max Tudor character, who is an Anglican priest who goes to a small village to escape the, the violence of his chosen prior profession. And... Um, he hits his village like a, like a, you know, the, the most amazing thing they've ever seen in, in a, this small place where nothing happens. And as soon as he arrives, people, of course, start dying and he has to solve the crime.
0: Were you always an Anglophile or did you just become one when you went to graduate school in England? And by the way, what were you studying in graduate school?
1: I guess I was an Anglophile from high school. I loved history, emphasis on European history, and special emphasis on uh, the Tudors in England, King Henry VIII, Shakespeare, it, just all of that. I just uh, love the architecture, the language, the the beauty of of England, of the UK. And let's see, you asked also, what uh, I studied in uh, uh, college, my graduate study, it was wait for it, the psychological investigation of intellectual development, which is short form, the psychology of learning. It, I was in the education department. And mostly, i I can't say they remember me for my brilliance as a scholar, but I remember just being so overwhelmed by the beauty of that place. I was at Cambridge and then went on uh, to do some sociology at uh, the University of Oxford and just spent a lot of time wondering how I got so lucky.
0: And how did you choose the particular settings for your books within England?
1: The initial inspiration undoubtedly came from Agatha Christie and St. Mary Mead, that kind of cozy, warm, safe-on-the-surface setting. There is no such place, really, in England now, or if there ever was. The Cotswolds probably comes closest. But in terms of the Max Tudor books, definitely, no question about it, Agatha Christie's Marple books had every uh, effect. I wish she'd written more of those. I liked Poirot, but I loved uh, Miss Marple. The other, uh, the Cambridge setting, was from my time in Cambridge, and uh, St. Just uh, didn't actually spend a lot of time there. He went to Edinburgh pretty quickly to solve a crime, but he's back there with Book Six, very very firmly uh, ensconced there investigating the uh, death of a master of a Cambridge college. Jim, the cozy genre has its own rules about keeping
0: violence, particularly gory violence, off the page. So I can't imagine you get your ideas ripped from the headlines, or do you? Where do you get the ideas, the germs of your stories?
1: I do actually rely quite a bit on the newspapers for my Ideas generally having to do with graft and theft, and the most amazing things people do come up with to avoid actually working for a living. I'm fascinated by that in my uh, murder mysteries that that gets translated into perhaps someone who is caught out in the process of ripping people off or something like that. Although there have been cases where truly diabolical, there was a dentist who killed his wife and her purported lover, he pretended this neighbor was a lover of hers, set it up as to look like a double suicide. And in a way, you, you just, you're just appalled and full of wonder at the ingenuity of, of that. He didn't get away with it, and I have to wonder how many people do get away with these crimes. But yeah, my my books come very much from the news, but cleaned up versions, yes.
0: Yeah, I've actually often wondered if people could channel the ingenuity they use in committing the crimes into doing something positive for society, how much better we'd all be. But then we wouldn't have uh, crime writing, would we? In the meantime, how do you structure your writing day? Do you write every day? Are you a full-time writer?
1: I am a full-time writer. My methods change a bit with circumstance, but and what I'm working on if I'm starting a new novel, that's a different thing from editing, from revising, you know, all the different stages you go through. Right now, I'm actually taking a a step back to catch up on paperwork, and next week I will start at, uh, by 10 o'clock, I'll be working on my Uh, revisions of a full draft, and I hope to finish uh, about 20 pages a day and finish it by 12 or 1 with any luck. My overall goal is to follow the writing advice of four hours a day or four pages of writing new copy, but that's, again, that's a different stage of the process. Right now I'm just um, using a spreadsheet, writing down my goal for the day for every day and uh, hoping to finish a good draft very you know a very good draft by uh, two or three weeks from now so while you're in the process of
0: considering a new story do you go back to England to restore your sensibility of the place your experiences um, the sounds and the, the smells and the feel of the place
1: My husband and I do go back as often as possible. He's also an Anglophile, so that works out great. Uh, Most recently, we were there for the coronation, not because we were invited, but because we wanted to be there for for that excitement. And that really was fun to be in London. We couldn't see anything except the tops of people's heads or carriages as they drove by from a distance. It was very tightly uh, secured, that event. But we did see it on a very large screen TV in a local church. So it was just fun. Everyone was celebrating. Had their Prosecco at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., whatever it was. After that, we went to Bath. And I had never been to Bath. Incredible but true. Loved that town. Just uh, It just has a really good feel to it. That might be something to do with the waters there, the all that stuff in the air, but it, it it's just is a feel-good town. I do like going back just to listen to the people to do some eavesdropping, to uh, just connect with what their concerns are at the moment, and uh, just just enjoy completely seeing that wonderful architecture.
0: You know, some writers never visit the places about which they write. They do all their research online. What do you think about that?
1: I think whatever works, works. I think you can't write science fiction without researching what's come before and imagining what happens next. So research on Google especially is a a big part of my life. I'm often researching poisons Most recently it's been guns, about which I know nothing and I'm concerned about making a mistake that will have people writing me emails explaining why I'm so wrong. Um, I did ask on uh, Facebook one day about a certain kind of gun from a certain era and I got all kinds of feedback from people explaining the right terminology, for example... You don't talk about a silencer, you talk about a suppressor. Uh, this, is, this is what several experts said. So I took that to heart and I made sure I, I had the lingo correct.
0: I absolutely agree with you, Jim, that the Internet can be a tremendous asset in research. Besides that, of course, real-life experts. I know I've been fortunate to be able to get information from people ranging from police chiefs to medical examiners. But I actually asked about place, about setting. Do you think you can describe a place without ever actually having set foot in it? Not for science fiction, of course, which is made up completely from imagination, but for places like English villages, even if their names aren't real.
1: I never really thought about it before. Let me tell you how Nether Monkslip Slip came to be. I had been thinking of you know what kind of series to write, and I was thinking you know, knitting shop and uh, bakery and all, all these village enterprises and realized I didn't really want to limit myself to one character in one profession in one village. I wanted it to be one village that had all of this, this ideal, uh, too ideal to be real kind of atmosphere the only thing that makes Nether Monk Lip a little different is that there's no butcher shop. And I'm not sure that was a deliberate choice, but I'm a vegetarian, so nobody in Nether Monkslip can <laughs> go and buy their Sunday roast. They have to go somewhere else to, to do that. It's completely, it's partly imaginary. It's partly from staring at photos of idyllic places in England, and they do have a ton of those. And I've visited a few of those, but it's, the real life is not quite as interesting as what writers can imagine. Well, as an ardent
0: fan of the English mystery, whether Agatha Christie's cozies or Elizabeth George's darker stories, I really appreciate your take on the genre. Jin, thank you so much for joining me today on Murder Rewrite and bringing us into your world of crime fighting.
1: Carol, you are 100% welcome. I really enjoyed chatting with you. It was fun. See you soon.
0: And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please join me next time for episode 19 of Murder We Write. Who will our guest be? That's the mystery.
1: Short cast club